0: Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader podcast. The title of today's podcast is Embracing the Dark Silence of God. And today we're going to share with you a a message from Mark 15 uh, of Jesus hanging on the cross uh, in what I'm calling in the dark silence of God. It's an incredible passage uh, about the crucified God. And it's just so important because remember, everything that happened to Jesus uh, in his life, in some way, happens to us. We follow him, a teacher, a student is not above his teacher, a servant not above their master. And so this, for me, has been, over the years, one of the most important texts to shape my understanding and thinking of what it means to be a pastor, a leader, a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And that's why silence is so important, the practice of silence in my own life, uh, and, uh, you know, has been so informative for my own formation in Jesus. In fact, as you consider this message from Mark 15 and embracing the dark silence of God, uh, let me invite you to take and do a 15-minute experience, a video experience, of uh, a link of you entering God's silence. Uh, And uh, there's a link to actually do that uh, on our website, emotionallyhealthy.org slash silence. That's emotionallyhealthy.org slash silence. And you'll actually see a a 15-minute experience there, and a link if you'd like to sign up for further resources that will help you enter silence. So check that out. But for now, thank you so much for being with us, and I pray God meets you in this message as he has met me in this text over the years as we get an amazing glimpse of Jesus, our Lord, here in this text. Enjoy.
1: At West Point in uh, November of 1969, uh, there was a cadet named James Pelosi, and he failed to put down his pencil at the end of an exam. Supposedly, he had gone on writing in his blue book after the order uh, to stop, so he was charged with cheating. He denied the charge, but uh, the Cadet Honor Committee, made up of students, found him guilty of disobeying West Point exam rules. So uh, he appealed it. It went to some higher authorities the administration at West Point, and his charges got dismissed. Uh, but the cadet uh, honor committee did not agree, and uh, they felt he had defied internal structure of West Point, and so uh, they gave him the silent treatment. All 938 cadets at West Point, and they did it for a year and seven months uh, until he graduated. He was forced to live and eat alone, when he took a seat in the dining hall, everybody at the table got up. If He signed up for an intramural sports team. Everybody else crossed out their name. Each morning he woke up wondering whether he would make it through the day. No other cadet socialized or spoke with him for 19 months, not even his closest friends. His mail was frequently torn up, his possessions vandalized, and the silence was intended so Pelosi would quit West Point and leave. But somehow, through the 19 months, he endured. It. Uh, they made a movie about it, actually, after he graduated. And uh, fortunately, West Point outlawed its 100-year tradition of the silent treatment uh, to cadets. Now, most of us, you know, we're familiar with the silent treatment in some manner, shape, or form. It's a way of, of, of exerting power. It's a way of manipulating a situation. If you're a parent and you've got small children, you know what it's like to get the silent treatment from your kids. They close the door. Don't talk to you, ignore you. Teenagers do it, lock themselves in rooms. Sometimes parents do it to their kids uh, who aren't listening. Friends do it to friends. Don't return emails, silent treatment. Don't return letters or phone calls. Co-workers do it at jobs. Uh, family, extended family does it all the time to each other. Spouses even do it to one another. Uh, it's, a way, it's a way, again, of exerting control. I act like you don't even exist. When I was in elementary school, I had a hard time sitting in a seat all day. I I wasn't a traditional learner, and uh, so I I used to talk and act out a lot. So the teachers would punish people like me by putting us in the back or the front of the room, depending on which grade it was. And uh, they would say, nobody talks to Pete. You know, I'd be like this. You know, walk right by, you know. They're going to recess, you know, and I'm trying to... But ignoring me. And uh, it was terrible. And then um, it didn't heal me, but it it was was terrible. And then uh, I got married. And I come from a family where, in my family, we didn't do silent treatment. We just did a lot of yelling and screaming. So when I got married to Jerry, uh, it was a shock when, you know, as our first year of marriage, we began to have conflict. And she would give me the silent treatment. And I would be talking to her, and it would be like I was invisible. Or she would go in her room and close the door. And then she would lock it. And then I would talk through the door and I would not get an answer. And I would get very desperate. I would even throw out Bible verses to convince her to open the door. Fortunately, we've, we've gotten past that right now. We're, we're not doing the silent treatment. That's not the reason she's on a plane right now to Germany. So the dictionary says that the silent treatment is defined as maintenance of an aloof silence toward another person as an expression of anger or an expression of disapproval. And so I think most of us, that's our experience, either giving or receiving the silent treatment. But today, our theme is making room for the silence of God. And God sometimes gives us the silent treatment. But it's different. It's actually a gift. It's actually an expression of trust in you. It's actually a love gift to you uh, and a moment of profound transformation. It's a very significant moment in your life, actually, when these times of silence from God come. And that means as long as you don't miss it or as long as you don't quit or as long as you don't run away. Now, you know, you know I, I like to compare growing in Christ and being transformed. It's like the moving of a, of a, of a minute hands on a clock. You really can't see that clock moving, but it's moving, right? Our growth is like that in Christ. Often you can't even, you don't feel yourself growing. But six months, a year, two years later, you realize you're in a different spot than you were before. But you couldn't quite see it. Well, making space for the silence of God moves you into a place of transformation that really moves that clock. But it doesn't feel like it's moving at all. But it's a very significant moment and time in your journey with God. So we talk a lot in life about meeting God everywhere. You know, we want to meet God where we least expect him. And uh, yet, this is a truth. And today's message is about the truth of the spiritual journey is, there are times when God appears silent. And in this text we're going to read, Jesus experiences the silence of the Father. Now, last week we talked about how the cross is, you know, it's it's unique. You know, Jesus is a historical event. It's a symbol of our whole faith. At the same time, the cross is the pattern of our lives, that that everything that happened to Jesus in his life in some way happens to each of us as we follow along in our journey with him. In some way. It's not quite the same, but it's different. But it happens to us. And that includes experiencing God's silence. So uh, we began by, you know, last week, you know, remember that that this pattern, Paul understood it. He goes, not just was Christ crucified, I am crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And Jesus Himself said, "A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master." That again, what happened to me, Jesus says, is going to happen to you. So don't be surprised as it it comes. And so this cross as a pattern of our lives. I began last week by talking about try to imagine or think of a situation where you're experiencing God's silence right now, or you're being on the cross, and and uh, you're like you're speaking to God, you're calling out, but you're not getting much of an answer back. So again, some examples might be loving your enemies. You know, you're saying, God, help me with this. Like, I can't imagine how I can ever do this because they so hurt me. And it's like God's not answering you, and yet you're called to go forward. Or it's something you need to do that's the right thing to do, like confronting someone, or, but you realize it, 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 it's so hard, and you're crying out to God, and it doesn't seem like you're getting an answer. Or, again, it might be something that, you know, Uh, emotionally, financially, spiritually, relationally, family member, physical sickness, something you're stuck in, and you're saying, you're calling out to God, but you don't seem to be getting an answer. And you find yourself waiting. And again, it might be some damage somebody's done to you, a disability or wound you're carrying, but you find yourself praying and God appears absent. And so whatever it might be, whatever aggravating, difficult, frightening circumstance in your life, as we read this text, I want you to to see yourself now, you're, you're, you're on a cross here, so you're, you're calling out to God, and it appears that he's silent. So with that, let's read. Jesus' experience of the silence of God, beginning in Mark 15, I uh, will begin with verse 33 and read down to verse 41. So let's look at Jesus uh, together. Thus says the Lord, At noon, darkness came over the whole land, until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabatani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem We're also there. Amen. All right, thank you. So try to picture the scene. It's 12 o'clock in the afternoon, 3 o'clock, darkness hits the land. It's like a solar eclipse. And God casts these dark, gloomy clouds uh, over the whole earth. And it's kind of like sign language. God is saying, This is it. And here's Jesus, he's hanging on the cross. And there is no voice from the Father, no answer. Now, if you remember, if you read this life of Jesus, that, for example, at Jesus' baptism, uh, he's there being baptized, and a voice comes from heaven, this is my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And the Father affirms him. Same thing at Mount of transfiguration. Uh, a key moment, he was talking about the cross. The Father says, yeah, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. You know, listen to him. But here, Jesus is crying out, but there's no answer. It's silent. And uh, his cry in verse 34 is one of the most famous lines in all of history. My God, my God, why? Why? And, and actually, it says with a loud voice or with a mega voice. This is not a, a small little, oh, my God, my God. No, he is, he is screaming it out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and forsaken, I mean, abandoned, I mean, the, the force of that verb. Now, if I was Jesus, at least I'd try to fake it. You know, he's not, he's not on the cross saying, God is love or the Lord is my shepherd. Or, God is good. I mean, he dies asking a question. He dies acknowledging he feels deliberately abandoned by his father to death. He becomes a curse, it says in Galatians 3, on behalf of us and his love for us. And so, Jesus, God himself becomes a man. Here's Jesus. He is taking the judgment of sin of humanity upon himself. He who knew no sin becomes sin. He who is one with the Father is bearing all the judgment, and he experiences being cut off. And uh, the Almighty God, we see in this text, he he becomes a helpless man. And God himself is the one on that cross forsaken by God. It's one of the great mysteries of Scripture. And uh, God becomes the crucified God. Now we have to pause here. You wonder if God loves you. He does this to have a relationship with you. He does this that you don't have to bear your judgment for your sin and I, so you could be forgiven of your sin and have a relationship, a living son-daughter relationship with God and be free. So what Jesus feels on that cross, it's real agony. It's not fake. He believes himself abandoned. And he enters the deepest darkness of all. Basically, friends, the lights go out. And he experiences full alienation from God. His lifeline is cut. As theologians termed it in all the, uh, the great creeds, he descended into hell. For all of us. He becomes a curse. Jesus believes the Father loves him. He's always believed that. He knew his Father's love. That's why he asked the question, why? Well, if you love me, why? And... Um, he always had the gift of the Father's presence. But now he doesn't have that anymore. He doesn't feel it. And so the question, why did you abandon me? It's not why did the people abandon me. Why did you abandon me? Very key. Why did you abandon me? And uh, it's one of the most difficult questions to answer, isn't it, in life? Why? right? How, when, where? That's easy. But uh, why? I remember from my freshman year in philosophy class in college, I understood half of what the guy was talking about. But I remember talking about the problem of suffering and the question of why. And I realized as I got older, I, I know even less about it. Why? And Jesus is asking why. For no mistake, you know, the prophets wrote, God says, my, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways what? Higher than your ways. So are my thoughts. Higher than your thoughts. And, and that great Job question of why. And Jesus is asking it, why? And silence from the Father at that moment. Nothing. So, okay, you're not dying for the sins of the world. I'm not dying for the sins of the world like Christ. He did that. You don't have to die for your sins. He died for your sins. Okay, We don't need two payments for sin. His was enough. But there's a pattern for us here that Jesus shows us what is part of all of our journey. And that is this. That Real faith is staying with God when we do not feel Him. That there will come times you don't feel anything from God. You don't feel His presence. And uh, that real faith is calling on God when your experience tells you He is not there. Have you had that? You're saying, God's good. God loves me. It sure doesn't feel like it right now. Everything's going wrong here. And it is probably... One of the top two or three important lessons you will learn as you follow Christ is this, that you are not following your feelings. You're following Jesus. And the feelings of God's presence are wonderful. I now, mean, I love sensing God's presence. And, and I, 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 we pray you do. We're going to end the service with an experience of hopefully, you know, you sensing his presence in worship, the word, prayer. But your feelings are not God. They're different. I like what Alan Jones said, uh, the author. He says, everyone has to go through two conversions. We start out by, okay, yes, this is great. God feels good. It's lovely. It's wonderful. But there's always a second conversion that everyone's got to pass through. And that is when you don't, when God is silent, when the feelings have dried up and it feels barren. And basically he says, if you don't go through that second one, you will never grow up. You'll remain a child forever. And so you will notice all through church history writings, they always talked about something called the dark night of the soul. It was another way of talking about the silence of God. That um, that many people at this point, this is the key moment of their journey. Either they're going to quit, abandon the journey, go back to where they were and saying this is not working for me, or you're going to be transformed. You're going to be matured. You will not be the same person. And basically, John of the Cross, who was, who was the most famous writer in the 1500s who wrote about this, said, this is the ordinary way every Christian grows, that, that our wires, our, our internal life is completely redone by God. Through dark nights, it's something God must do in us, and we allow Him to do it. And so He talked about this stripping process of your soul, so that you can commune and have fellowship with God. He basically compares it to you are a baby, you know, drinking from your mother's breast from God in your baby faith, but at some point God's going to wean you off that. He's going to remove feelings, and He is going to grow you up into an adult, where your faith is not driven by how you're feeling today; it's driven by something much deeper. You're staying with Him even when you don't feel them. And so I like this one quote uh, by, by John of the Cross, and, and he gets at the heart of it. He says this, God, in the, in the si- when there's silence, when the dark night, God is purging and emptying the soul of all its affections and imperfect habits it has contracted in its whole life. These are deeply rooted in the substance of the soul, and God is pulling them out of you. So that he can replace them with an infusion of his deep, fiery love. And so if you read the Bible, you'll notice that that all the greats experienced this silence of God. I mean, Moses, Abraham, 25 years, Job, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the 12 disciples, Paul, they had it. And it it was part of their journey in transformation in Christ. And so, I mean, David, oh my goodness. So so in preparation for this, I, I, I reread a book that I read a number of years ago uh, uh, about Mother Teresa. And uh, as you know, Mother Teresa was one of the great giants in the 20th century, and uh, she died in 1997. But they released about uh, seven or eight years later her journal over a 50-year period, all her journal entries and letters and correspondence. And uh, it shocked people uh, what was in these journals because it was all about the silence of God and darkness. And uh, as you know, she worked with the poorest of the poor. And uh, right now they're in at least 77 different countries. But she basically writes in this book about, in her journals, that for over 50 years she experienced a dark night or silence from God. And uh, it it was overwhelming for me to reread it this past week. Uh, But but she says that she launched out and began this work among the poorest of the poor and founded her order. Here's something she writes. She goes, a darkness began for me. It actually began when she started doing something good. She goes, it, was a, it began as a deep loneliness in the heart. All within me became icy cold, a, a terrible emptiness, as I began to feel the absence of God. The pain within me, she wrote in another journal entry, is so great I feel nothing for all the publicity. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such a convicting emptiness that these thoughts return to me like sharp knives and they hurt my very soul. I'm told God loves me. And yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. She writes about everyone around me is falling in love by God by being around me, and I feel nothing. And she writes, here she is getting a Nobel Prize, and she goes, it feels like another crucifixion. And she goes, "I, I used to spend hours before the Lord just loving him and talking to him. Now my soul is like, she loved this phrase, my soul is like an ice block. I have nothing to say. And then she writes, you know, along the way, yet I want to know God. I want God's will even in this hard and deep darkness. And she, refer, she refers to her experience of giving leadership you know, all over the world to an interior martyrdom. Like, God was, she was in a true crucifixion. And she came to realize, she writes this, deep down somewhere in my heart that longing for God, I'm praying will break through the darkness. But she came to realize towards the end of her life that her darkness was a treasure. And it was a treasure, and it was key to her unique work. And she eventually wrote this towards the end of her life. I have come to love the darkness because of what it did in her and, and through her. So we are invited, and it's an invitation. And I'm going to use this phrase uh, carefully to sink deeply into the silence of God. By sinking deeply in the silence of God, I'm referring to allowing that silence of God as you're staying and waiting with him in it to do its work in you. Because it's doing a deep, deep work and a painful work in you. But one that is so critical, God gives you some some hopes here and some handles. It's this. He gives you two things that happen in this text. The reason you can hang in there in this time is this. Number one is, even though it seems God is silent, he is working powerfully. Now, I want you to notice in this text, two things happen. Jesus is there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in verse 38, the first thing happens. He breathes his last and he dies. And then it says, the veil is torn. Verse 38, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And salvation, basically, friends, gets open to the world. And the veil was meant in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, that only a Jewish high priest once a year could go in there. Okay, people could not get to God except through sacrifices and through a Jewish high priest. Now, the veil is rent because of Christ's death. Now, it's over. Anybody can go into the presence of Almighty Father. Salvation's open to the whole world through his death. It's like Paul saying, death is at work in me, but Christ is at work in you. And then the centurion, verse 39. The centurion means he's over 100 soldiers. This was the guy supervising the crucifixion. When he sees Jesus die on that cross, and how he dies, he says, he's the first Christian, actually, after the death of Christ. He goes, surely this man was the son of God. And actually, the term son of God was was reserved for Roman emperors. He goes, no, no, the emperor's not God. Jesus, he's God. And he becomes a believer. And, uh, and And so there's power getting released through this death of Christ. In fact, Jesus is meditating on the cross, we know, on Psalm 22, because, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is, is a quote from David that he wrote in Psalm 22. And if you read the whole Psalm 22, it's, it's really worth reading when you go home. You'll read about it. It's, it really, it's, it's a foreshadowing of, of what the Messiah is going to suffer. You know, you know uh, I've been pierced and wounded. Bulls have surrounded me. But Psalm 22 ends with talk of resurrection. That's the beauty of it. Jesus got this in mind. It says at the end, all the earth will, re- will remember and turn to the Lord. Future generations will be told about the Lord. So, so Jesus has got this, he, he, the silence of God, but he's hanging. The reason he's able to stay there is because he knows there is resurrection in God. And so he's waiting, knowing God's going to do something very powerful. And so here's the pattern we learn from Jesus. Even though it may seem like nothing good is happening, God wants you to know this. He is doing something great in you, and he's going to do something great through you. And that great thing in and through you can happen no other way but that you make room for this silence of God. And so actually, my I, I've had a few long dark nights. I mean, I think they come in little bits and pieces along the way, you know, for a week, month, or whatever, you know, a couple of days. But then there's some seasons that are just long. And my first really big one was in 1994, actually. It lasted about two years. And I was pastoring New Life at the time. And uh, I remember it was I would start my day with God in prayer and, and reading Scripture like I always do, and it was just dry as dust. I felt like I was talking to the air, reading the Bible, and it's like you know you're reading the Bible, and, and like three minutes later, you're like, what am I doing? What do I read? I have no idea. And nothing was connecting. But I did. I just I just kept having my time alone with God. I came here. I, I, I preached. I I, I worship. Everyone's everyone's all excited around me, dancing. I'm like, okay, God is good. You know, His love endures forever. But I didn't feel anything. But At a certain point, after about two years, uh, it just ended. And I recognized at that time, at that moment, really, my spiritual life was changed forever. Because it really didn't matter since then, really, about feelings, good or bad. Something broke in me that I know could only have happened, but through that silence, through that dark night. And I realized God was in it. Not that it was fun by any means. I, if you like poetry, Theodore Rethke an American poet. He said this, in a dark time, the eye begins to see. In a dark time, the eye begins to see in one of his poems. I love that. You don't see anything in the beginning. But as you stay with Jesus in that dark time, you begin to see some things. What's really interesting is that Mother Teresa writes about how... She, real, God was, she realized God was doing some things in her. And part of it was she became, as you know, world famous, winning the Nobel Prize. She had so much praise. And it became very clear to her that this was, and her spiritual directors had helped her to see this, that God was humbling her and purifying her so she could handle all the applause and all the attention that it would not even touch her. Uh, in fact, she writes about how in the dark night is when, she, as that thing began, is when she got the revelation that as she was with people who were the poorest of the poor, she actually saw the face of Jesus in them. Matthew 25, you know, the text when Jesus, when you, when you give to the poor, you give to me and all that, and you feed them, you feed me. She, that, 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 that scripture came alive, and she actually had this revelation in the darkness of Christ in the poorest of the poor. And it, as you know, transformed her life and actually impacted the whole world. So, you know, if you, you know, we do a lot of marriage work and relationship work at New Life and, and um, you know, there's a thing we, we teach, we've taught for years that there's basically stages of intimate relationships, whether it's marriage or a boyfriend, girlfriend or family members, close friendships. And it begins with, we begin with, we start a relationship and we're in, you know, we're all, we're all happy. And uh, then what happens is disillusion sets in. You have an illusion, this is going to be awesome. Then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is not awesome anymore. And one gets disillusioned. And then you hit confusion. You're like, what am I doing here? I mean, why did I get involved with this woman or this man? i got to get out of here. This is not what I signed up for. And then eventually you come to a place where you have a resolution. Either you despair, you say, I'm at this person, goodbye, or you enter a deeper intimacy. Well, in the same way, in our relationship with God, it is similar. We we start with God like illusions. Oh, the Christian life, my life is going to be tremendous. Rich, happy, everyone's going to love me. I'm cruising now. And all of a sudden you find out God is silent. Dark night. Everything's going wrong, you're like, I didn't sign up for all this. And you, and you get this disillusion. And some people quit Christianity at that point. They say, I'm out, I'm done, and get very confused. But if you hang in there and stay with him, you come to not a despair, but by God's grace, you come to a deep intimacy. It really is very similar to human relationships. I like what Scott Peck writes in, in A Road Less Traveled. He talks about the difference between romantic love and authentic love. He says real love is not primarily a feeling, it's a commitment. And the test of real love, says Peck, is not how you act when you feel loving. Anybody can be loving then. The test of authentic love is how do you act when you don't feel loving and you don't feel loved. Anybody can do good things and be a Christian when you feel God's presence. But the real test of faith is how you act and what you do when you sense God is absent and God is silent. So there's a second dynamic that goes on here in this passage. And we learn, again, the pattern of Jesus. Okay, God's doing something powerfully. We can trust in that. The second thing is, even though you feel alone, God has positioned others to watch with you. And that's found here in verse 40. Look at the text for a minute. It's a very important few verses. I I wish I could give a whole sermon just on these three verses, or these two verses, because it speaks about how some women uh, are basically watching Jesus from a distance. And it gives their names, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome, and, and names these women. These women must have been very well-known and prominent in the early church for their names to be here in the Gospel of Mark. And, and uh, in that culture, what's so interesting, they're, they're, they're with Jesus. They're, they're watching him from a distance. They travel from Galilee, 60 miles away. That's a long way on foot or on donkey. And, and they're there, companions with Jesus, and uh, these women are marginalized. I mean, women in, in, in ancient times in Jewish society they were not allowed to be disciples of rabbis. They, they were they were not allowed to learn the Torah. They, they rabbis didn't speak to women in public, and women couldn't testify in court. And they were inferior and subordinate. They were second class. Jesus, I me mean, remarkably, he elevated women. What's interesting at the cross, it's you know the men. I don't know where we are. Okay, nowhere to be found right now, but. The women are there. The pagan Roman centurion is there. And and at the the cross, everybody's on level ground. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? The cross of Jesus. But but the women are are, are watching Jesus. They're they're, they're with him. and, and, And the people you'd least expect. Listen, if Jesus needed people to be his companion and watch with him as he hung there on the cross, you better believe it. You do too. And we learn from this. We need people not to fix us. Not to give us a glib Bible verse, but to sit with us, be with us as we are in a dark night, as we find ourselves in the silence of God and going through a tough time. What I love here is, is, is it comes from people you'd least expect it. And, I, and uh, you know, at New Life Fellowship, We were talking at our staff meeting last week and about connecting, and we've always connecting events going on at New Life. And and what makes connecting very unique at New Life is that we've got people from you know 65 plus different countries, all different social classes, and and uh, racial and ethnic groups. I mean, it's as diverse as you can get what we're doing here at New Life in terms of connection. And and, and God has people to watch with you that you'd least expect. People you never would have dreamed would watch with you. I thought everyone watching with me would be an Italian-American from Naples. (laughs) I never imagined over the years that God would have people from all over the world watching with me in my own journey, standing with me, police officers and sanitation workers and... And all different colors and shades and and folks from uh, different ages, older and younger, and all different social classes, low and high. I never expected how God would work. And I want to encourage you, friends, you never imagine who God's going to have watch with you as a companion as you're walking through some things. That's why connecting is so important. And that you want to make sure you get yourself in a position where you can find some people who can do that for you. Mentors, counselors, good friends with some maturity, peers. Mother Teresa always had people watching with her. They were spiritual directors for her. They were people in authority. They were companions of other orders. But she had people who could help her get perspective when basically she couldn't see anything of what God was doing. To keep her on track. And as you know, when you're in those dark nights, when it seems like God is silent, you can think you're going crazy. And God knows we need each other. We need community. That's why the church is such an important place. And uh, so you want to let yourself connect. And you know what? Not only that, you want to be a companion for other people. We want to all be that for each other. We want to watch. We don't want to be telling people answers to everything, all right? Shut your mouth. Take it easy. But to just be present as they're on their journey with God and helping them get some perspective, perhaps, but truly like these women being companions in, in the journey. So in closing this, Jesus closes with these words on verse 37. It says, with a loud cry, great intensity, Jesus breathes his last. Luke tells us there's one more thing he says. It says he calls out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. That's how I'd like us to end this morning. So I want to invite the worship team to come on forward. And I want to invite you and I to into the hands of the Father that you might commit your spirit. Now you've got to breathe your last, all right, uh, to do that. So remember... God made himself visible on the cross. And he says to humanity, here I am. God, we say God is love. God, friends, when you see that cross, God really is love. That's how much he wants a relationship with you. The Christian faith stands and falls on the knowledge and the reality of the crucified God. That is, with the knowledge of him. And so I want to close with a painting, well-known painting by Rembrandt in the 1500s called The Prodigal Son. And uh, Henry Nouwen made it quite popular in his books on The Prodigal Son. But when I'm in a dark night, when I find myself in God's silence, I often go back to this passage in Luke 15, and I go back to this painting to help me connect to God. And I'd like to just take a minute or two and do it together. And again, just to see the painting here, this is the father. And what's really important of the painting is, is the father's face is, is suffering on it. And, and so whatever you're walking through, our God understands. He's been in the darkest pit, okay, than yours. And, and there you see the son, okay? And, and you see the hands of the father, big hands on his shoulders. And I'm going to invite you to in just a couple of moments to kind of to, to, to kneel, figuratively speaking, and let the Father into your hands, I commit my spirit, to commit yourself to the hands, the loving hands of the Father. And I, I, I like, every time we wander from the love of the Father, and we, we listen to other voices, and saying, you know, do something spectacular, do something great, you know, get rich, make a lot of money, be popular, and we wander from the love of the Father, we go into the world, we are lost. And the Christian life can properly be seen as we're constantly returning to the love of the Father Where he says over you and I, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. And he says that over you because Christ has died for you. You have nothing left to prove. And he loves you. And we just, we kneel down and we let ourselves put our head against his chest. And I'm going to invite you to do the same thing in just a moment. Put your head against the chest of the father and let his hands rest on your shoulders. For some of you, I want you to move from being, here's the elder brother. And the elder brother is watching the love of the father. But he's not entering in. He's not kneeling down. It's all intellectual to him. It's just head knowledge. And there you see some other bystanders. And so you may be an elder brother today. Uh, you may be someone who's run away from God. But now's your moment. Let's all of us. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And just let yourself fall into the hands of the Father. So I'm gonna, we're going to take a minute. Okay? And so if you, you're welcome to look at the painting as I do it. Or you know, get it in your in your head and just close your eyes here. And let's pray as Jesus prayed, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so see yourself as kneeling before the Father and into his hands on you. Surrender yourself. And imagine his hands on your shoulder, his love just going right through you. Let's
0: take a minute together to be still before him.